Well, if you're a guest this morning and we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to be worshiping with you again. Um, we're going to read our scripture passage in a, in a bit, but I want to say just a couple more things about the season and then give a little, a little kind of background information uh, as to the context of this scripture passage that we're going to read. Some things that Jesus said, I, I think it would be helpful to have a little background before we read it. So, uh, first, Advent again. So often, uh, at least culturally, we come to this season and December functions pretty much as the build-up to Christmas. And uh, we can be lulled into thinking that that's the pattern uh, in our spiritual lives as followers of Jesus as well. But it's much bigger than that. Certainly this, this month, these four weeks leading up to Christmas, is a time of remembering that, that Christmas really came a long time ago. Craig said it earlier that, that Jesus moved into our neighborhood, that that really happened, and that there's a story we believe is actually true. And it's, it's the gospel around which we gather this morning. So we, we definitely remember but I would argue that maybe even the bigger piece of Advent is the anticipating part. For just as Christ really did come nearly 2,000 years ago after being long awaited, he will come again, just as he promised, even though we've been waiting a long time. So we kind of get in touch during this season with the waiting that the Jewish people of old experienced before Jesus came the first time. And we ponder we kind of hold that reality in our, in our hearts that while there is a long period of waiting, there is, there will be a conclusion. We anticipate. And that's, that's Advent. Uh, and now, and now the, the scripture that we're going to look at today comes from uh, Luke chapter 21. But before we read the text, just a, a little on, on the context of this passage. This is... Jesus' kind of farewell address. He, he spoke it right before uh, the evening of the Last Supper. And in, in those days, that, that week prior to this, Jesus was in the pattern of going into Jerusalem during the day and teaching in the temple courts. Then in the evening, he would leave the city with his disciples and go down through the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives, and they would spend the night there. And then he'd do the same thing the next day, into the city, out of the city. And something happened that prompted this kind of final address of Jesus. And we have that event earlier in Luke 21. We won't read that passage today, but I wanted you to see it. Here's what prompted this final address. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. They, they were in, the, in, in Jerusalem at the temple, and, and Jesus' disciples were wowed by the impressive nature of the temple. In its day, it was an almost unbelievable architectural achievement. It had been under reconstruction for 46 years at this point. It would take another 30 years to finish, being completed in 63 AD. It would stand completed only for seven years until the Romans came and raised it, completely destroyed it. Uh, but in its day, it was amazing. Uh, there's a, There's a historical passage from something outside of the Bible that explains how impressive this was from a historian named Josephus. It's, it's worth reading together. The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye for being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold. The sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes 
as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, five in height, and six in breadth. The incredible size of the foundation's stones was breathtaking. Those stones translated to feet, 70 feet long, 8 feet high, 10 feet wide. To put it in perspective, from the front of the step here to the poinsettia at the rear of the aisle is about 70 feet. Imagine now, 8 feet high, 10 feet wide, one solid piece of stone, and cut to perfect fit at a quarry two miles away, transported overland and set in place stone by stone. It was amazing, unbelievable. And then the opulence of it all, uh, precious gems, gold. I mean, the disciples saw this building and they were, they were stunned. They saw it and were amazed. Everyone who saw it was amazed. Thus they were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and, and with gifts dedicated to God. They were impressed. Wow! But Jesus was thoroughly unimpressed. The very next verse. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. You've got to feel this passage, right? It, it, it's stunning. Who, who's going to move this thing? The disciples thought. It was massive. It was new. It was, it was the most incredible thing they'd ever seen. Now that the temple had been rebuilt, it would never end. What do you mean it's going to be torn down, Jesus? In Mark's gospel, in fact, it tells us that the disciples were so stunned that they requested a personal audience with Jesus, a personal explanation, because we just don't get this, Jesus. What do you mean? And and the gospels record that when they left Jerusalem that day and went back to the Mount of Olives, as was their pattern, Jesus gave them that explanation. They asked, when will these things happen? And said, what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? So that's what's going on when we read this passage. That's the setting. They've just been at the temple, hiked back through the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, 150 feet higher than Jerusalem. They're now at this high vantage point looking down at the Temple Mount. The temple is standing right there. And now Jesus is about to explain when, how, why this whole thing is going to go away. So let's listen to the word of the Lord. Luke 21, 25 through 36. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehension of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so... 
When you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. It it sounds apocalyptic, because it is. Um, But it's not kind of weird. Apocalyptic can sound a little crazy, but Jesus is communicating some pretty straightforward stuff here. Gives us really three things. What's going to happen? There will be an end when Jesus returns. Uh, Assurance that it will happen, that Jesus really will return. And what we should do in the meantime. Right? Don't worry about unimportant stuff and be watchful. Uh, So let's just look at those. There, There will be an end. You know, the disciples were focused on the destruction of the temple. They, they just seen it, and they were stunned at what Jesus said. And, and they, they were struggling with it. They know Jesus, they believe him, and they see this massive thing. How can this be? And Jesus knew what was going on in them, and he confronted their false sense of permanence. And in so doing, he confronts ours. This is a big piece of Advent. Uh, Anticipating the end when Jesus returns. This world as we know it will end. Now, not, not saying that eternal life or the kingdom of God or heaven is some kind of fluffy existence in the clouds. It's not. Jesus said very clearly there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But he also said very clearly, this heaven and this earth will pass away, but my words will not. This broken world, all of the brokenness that we sometimes assume is normal, is going to end. Period. And what, what's really going on here is Jesus is seeing what, the, what they're thinking. Jesus is seeing a little bit uh, uh, what they really think about the world and, and, and what's really going on here. What's really going on is a clash of worldviews. Right? If, if you're new to the idea of a worldview, uh, the definition I like best comes from the American Scientific Affiliation of all places. Right? Oh, this is it. A worldview is a view of the world used for living in the world. A worldview is a, me- a mental model of reality a comprehensive framework of ideas and attitudes about the world, ourselves, and life. It's a system of beliefs or a system of personally customized theories about the world and how it works with answers for a wide range of questions. It's a fancy way of saying that your your worldview, and everybody has one now, 
your worldview answers for you this question. What's really going on in this world and in my life? When my eyes open every day from the pillow to another day in this world, what am I thinking, what am I assuming is actually going on? What matters? Is there purpose? What should I do? What shouldn't I do? And why? This whole thing. Everybody has a worldview. Uh, and, and really, that, that's, that's the big conversation because every religion, every spiritual philosophy, uh, m- many kind of self, self-help philosophies, all extend to us a view of the world. There's a marketplace of ideas out there, a, a kind of Amazon, if you would, of worldviews. And, and there are literally hundreds, thousands of nuanced ideas about what's really going on in this world, what my life is, where I fit, and how I'm to make sense of things. And you, you know this because we live in this world. I mean, it, it's, really, it's really quite stunning, right? Just, just walk into a middle school or a high school and take a spiritual breath. Oh, you taste it. It's in the air. There is all out war of ideas which idea is going to win the day in minds and hearts it's it's ideological hand-to-hand combat face-to-face wrestling every day what's real what's true why do i believe that it's present all the time and if you happen to be in middle school or high school or you're a student, as a church family, we want you to hear that we know that it's hard. We are praying for you. It's really, really hard to know what's right. It's hard for us as adults to know what's right. We, we cling to the Lord and we cling to faith and we're not crystal clear all the time either, but we know that Jesus is alive, we know that Jesus is good, and we know that Jesus is for us. And we gotta do this as a group worldviews matter. And what Jesus was confronting in particular here is a a, a subset of the worldview category that kind of argues that life just kind of goes on and on. You know, the Disney version of this would be the Lion King circle of life thing. You know, the cute little song, circle of life. I shouldn't sing it, really. Um... And we all, we all like, I love, I love the movie. We're probably going to watch it pretty soon. Our boys want to watch it. And, and, and we'll, we'll probably check it out. And like the song, it's great. But it's proffering a flat-out lie. The, you know, cute song. But what rests behind it is not true. Life doesn't keep going around and around and around. That's not true. You know, there's a whole set of worldviews that argue, just, just goes around. You, we, we were born to die, says this worldview. Death is a perfectly natural part of life. It's just part of the circle of life. We go back to dust and those you know, molecules are, are somehow turned around in the, in the universe's great purpose and we come back as something else sometime, maybe whatever, a star or something. And, you know, the Christian worldview is not that. Other worldviews argue that all of humanity is on something of an upward spiral. And this is how the idea gets out there, that it really doesn't matter what you believe. Because the mental model now, the worldview, is that 
all of us are, are sojourners together on a, on a great journey up a mountain. And it doesn't matter which path you take. We're all heading to the same place, ultimately, the top of the mountain. And, and whether we're taking laps around the mountain or kind of, you know, switchbacking straight up a face, whatever it is, we're going back and forth. We're making our way. And the motto of this worldview is, come on, everybody, we can do this. We're getting there. We can make it. We're, we're getting better. Every step makes us a little bit better as human beings, as a world, as a whole, eventually with a long enough effort or, or strong enough climb, we'll make it to the top. We're getting there. And what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's looking at his disciples and I think speaking into their spiritual understanding of the world and saying, look, life is not circular. There's no upward spiral going on here. This world is falling apart. Uh, it's broken because of human disobedience. Life in this world is not getting better. It's getting worse. There are bright spots. Sure. And I am going to make everything new. But this broken world, as you know it, is going to end. Or in temple language, not one stone of this brokenness you're experiencing in the world will be left on another. Not one. The broken world is going to end. And Jesus says, don't be deceived as to the timing of it. We, we didn't read the, the whole passage, but it starts at verse 8 where Jesus said, in essence, don't be deceived by the craziness because there's craziness. There's people proffering all sorts of different worldviews. There, there are false teachers and, and cult leaders, spiritual gurus who claim that the end is here or, or was back there sometime. There's war and there always will be war. And when you're trapped in war, you feel like it's the end. There are catastrophes like earthquakes and, and tsunamis. Remember 2004, the tsunami in the Indian Ocean? 230,000 people in 14 countries, killed just in 24 hours, right? Unbelievable. There there will be cosmic signs, kind of like the Hale-Bopp comet. This harkens back to 1997, so not not all of you remember that. But there was a cult called the Heaven's Gate Cult. And for those of you who were around, you remember the leader convinced his 39 followers that there was an alien spacecraft tracking with the comet right behind it. It was in its shadow, so we couldn't see it from Earth. And he convinced his entire group that if they committed suicide together, they would release themselves from the containers of this physical body such that they could be transported up into the alien spacecraft. And those 39 people killed themselves. This is not a game. There is a battle. It is all-out war in our minds for that worldview hill. That's why the scripture that Pastor Josh preached on last week is of such great importance. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We got to win the battle of the mind. And there's some very practical stuff in the Bible as to what to do to actually do that, which we'll talk about another time. Second Corinthians, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. There's a whole spiritual practice and discipline about how you can actually do that, which I would love to teach you. 
So all of this stuff, right? Jesus said there will be an end. Don't be fooled by all the craziness. All that stuff will happen because the world is broken because of human disobedience. But the end won't come right away. Don't be deceived on the, on the timing issue, Jesus said. Just before his ascension, the disciples asked him, is now the time? And Jesus said this, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. And in Matthew, a similar conversation came about, and Jesus said this, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus said, look, I, I don't even know. <laughs> So I take this as permission, in fact, coaching to all Christians everywhere, one, to not speculate about the exact date Jesus is going to return because we don't know. Jesus said that he doesn't even know. Second, whenever you hear other Christians or people who purport to be Christians waving some kind of flag that says, here's the time or that's the time, just walk away. That's a complete lie. Ignore it and turn your eyes upon Jesus. That's what we do. All right, so the message is there, there will be an end to all this brokenness. Don't be deceived by the worldview competition. Don't be deceived by the timing, people saying it'll be here or, or here, you know, any of that. And that, that's really what Jesus meant by that little fig tree illustration. Did you catch that? It, it can just roll right by, right? He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. The appropriate posture toward all the craziness in the world is this. Just like you know summer is near when you see a tree budding in the spring, you can know that the kingdom of God is near when you see all this crazy. And, and the, the effect it has on us as mature followers of Jesus is not to increase our hand-wringing and crouching spiritually, and oh, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. The, the, the effect on a mature Christian is to build the base of quiet confidence that says Jesus really is who he claimed to be. For real. Not kinda. He does what he says he will do. And he will do what he said he would do when he said that we would see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. It's a sure thing. Right? We didn't, we didn't, there's another portion of this passage just before the passage we read this morning. Go back and read all of 21 on your, on your own today. But there's a, a few verses that speak specifically to the destruction of the temple. Literally, line by line, it happened exactly as Jesus said. As surely as that prophecy about the destruction of the physical temple happened just as Jesus said it would, he will return just as he said he would. So, what do we do do with this? First of all, let me just acknowledge that if you're kind of new to the Christian faith or you, you feel like you're exploring this whole thing, uh, you, you might be thinking this sounds like something from a sci-fi movie. Really, because I personally remember being at, this, at that place. And, and you might very well be thinking, does this, does this guy, does this church actually believe this stuff? Or are they just towing some kind of party line here? 
I mean, literally, Jesus is going to return to earth from the sky. And what, what are you talking about? Well, the, the, the short answer to that is if, if you're considering the Christian faith, this probably isn't the place to begin. And, and, uh, and, and yes, as a church, we really do believe this, but would also love the opportunity to explain why. There's, there's a foundation for this that, that goes much deeper than just this particular message. So I, just personally, I'm always open to that. I'll buy the coffee as long as you're okay with Starbucks. And I, I would love to chat, and I promise no arm twisting. Just always welcome the opportunity to chat about why we believe what we do. I mean, ultimately, this is called the Christian faith, right? Not the Christian completely proved by reason. But there are very reasonable explanations and foundations to our faith. So with that caveat to those who are exploring. What shall we do as followers of Christ with, with this message? I mean, there, there will be an end to the world, Jesus says, to this brokenness that we kind of almost assume is normal, kind of take as normal day-to-day life, but really, it's a symptom of brokenness. His return is as certain as summer after you see leaves budding in the spring. So what do we do in the meantime? How do we apply all this? Jesus gives us some stuff. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing drunkenness in the anxieties of life. Be always on the watch and pray. Now, you could read that first verse as, okay, here's just another Christian morality checklist. Just do this, this, and the other thing, and you'll be okay with God. That's, that's not what it's saying. This is talking about where our attention is focused. Where, where is our heart directed? That's what Jesus is getting at here. Be careful, he says. That's lesson number one. Be watchful. Lesson number two, and, and pray. So he didn't explain exactly what he meant by this, but if you really press on this and you ask, what did Jesus mean when he said, be careful? I mean, certainly he qualified it with a weighing down of hearts uh, through you know, misdirected attention in life, thinking that some, some worldly stuff will provide for us what those things seem to be promising, but in the end fail to deliver, right? And we, we chase after those to our own peril, and, and when we actually arrive and find them, we realize, oh, that was, that was a lie. That didn't deliver what I was hoping. Uh, but I think there's more to that. I, I think it's this worldview thing. I mean, be careful. We're walking through a minefield every day out there. There are ideas that seek to take you captive, right? Or in, in Bible language in another place, your adversary, the, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking one to devour. I mean, this is, this is a real thing, and we need to be really aware of it, and we need to be careful uh, and, and coach those you know, y- younger with less time on the, on the battlefield as to how to navigate this whole thing. Be careful. Be watchful. That means spiritually, don't be doing this. Be doing this. Because he's coming. We don't know when, but this is a real deal. Right? Be watchful. And pray. Which I take to be the primary way we actually seek the Lord. If 
we believe that Jesus is alive right now and is a person, not just a religious idea, we will seek that person. And, and prayer is the chief way that we do that. Again, not religious checklist. Relational investment with a person. That's what that means. So Jesus issued this call to vigilance from the Mount of Olives, uh, which is, by the way, the official site of his return, he said. Right? So from the place he departed and the place to which he will return, he said, be careful, be watchful, and pray. So the whole invitation of Advent is an invitation to come home. It's not an invitation to be scared. It's not an invitation to try to get our lives all right again so that we might approach God in a new way. The invitation is just to come home because none of us can clean ourselves up well enough to be presentable to Jesus. He, he does the cleaning for us. That's the whole gospel. All we have to do is turn back, come home. So come home. Really. Wherever you're at, whatever you're hiding, Jesus loves you. Really. Come home. We as a church love you too. We prepare to celebrate Christmas. We remember that Jesus really came that Jesus moved into our neighborhood, became just like us so that we could know him. We anticipate the coming of Jesus into our lives as we turn toward him and accept his invitation to come home. And we anticipate the return of Jesus, that he will make good on all he promised. He will make all things new. Or in Jesus' storybook Bible language, he will make everything sad come untrue. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, would you? Lord Jesus, thank you for your goodness to us. We confess to you again that in, in our lives and all the things that occupy our attention, we drift. Our hearts just drift from you daily, moment by moment even. Uh, call us, Lord, back to you. Release us from any sense of condemnation in us over that drift uh, and, and free us to worship you willingly, to, to present ourselves to you fully. And for, for all of us here, God, if there, if there be any barrier between us and you, be it uh, an intellectual argument of reason, something we just can't get around or, or beyond, be it an, an emotional hurt of the past, maybe something so deep it's even difficult to imagine how painful it is, or, or even some hurt experienced at the hands of the organized church and the, the brokenness of the, the whole world, the church included. God, we pray that you'd pour out your spirit on us, that you'd bring healing, and that you'd help us turn to you and return home to you. We ask it all, Lord, in your name. Amen.